So tonight I want to begin a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. This important sutta is actually found twice in the collection of the Buddha's teachings, and I think someone's already said that this word uh, sutta means talk or discourse, teaching, basically, so the written texts that we have of the Buddha's teachings. And it's a central and important text in our tradition because it describes a complete path of our practice from the beginning, kind of foundational practices, all the way to complete awakening, full liberation. So it's a, in just a few pages, it, it uh, describes the breadth and the depths of the meditative practices that we do here at IMS and all of our sister centers. Usually this word satipatthana is translated as the foundations of mindfulness. Again, I think Guy spoke about this the other night. Sometimes you might hear it called or translated as the establishment of mindfulness or the arousing of mindfulness or the frames of reference. But basically it's pointing us to ways to be with our experience, to develop insight, to come to freedom from suffering. And as I said, I want to begin, there's four foundations of mindfulness. I want to begin a series of talks on them because on shorter retreats, there's just not the time to go into each one and each one has so much within it. But on a long retreat like this, it's a great opportunity to more fully explore these teachings. And also because you are really committed practitioners um, and it's really helpful to know and revisit these teachings again and again, because it's what we're instructing you in uh, the mornings in our instructions. And certainly as we're talking to you in the practice meetings, but there's more in the sutta than we tend to give instructions on. So I think it's really helpful for us to know um, what's included in that because there may be other aspects that aren't so commonly taught that can be really helpful for us. But it really kind of lands us in this tradition of practice. We're in the Theravada tradition, the school of the elders. And what we're practicing is what we generically call vipassana. And, you know, there can be some ways, um, strict academic uh, uh, looking at these terms that we're using them a little loosely, but we do call this vipassana practice. And after 2,500 years since the time of the Buddha, this is still very much central to what we practice and teach here. And when our forebears, our teachers, not that long ago, relatively speaking, in the 60s and 70s, went off to Asia to practice and to hear and and, um, learn these teachings. When they came back to the West, vipassana was what they brought back as the main practice that was taught in in those years. And as I said, we actually only teach a subset of what is generally known as vipassana or described in the sutta. And it's even become that we're now called the vipassana tradition, even though traditionally there is no such thing. Vipassana is a subset of the different meditative techniques that the Buddha taught, but it's become so well known and so well practiced that it's gained that name, the vipassana tradition. But I think it's helpful for us to know that even what we teach here is a subset of the, not just of the sutta, but of all of the varieties of vipassana that are currently or have been taught in the Buddhist countries, particularly uh, Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. So it's helpful for us to know that too. Sometimes we can think, oh, this is what meditation means. What we're practicing here, this is meditation. And yes, it is meditation, but it's certainly not the only style of meditation. Definitely, if you broaden out to the other um, yanas or lineages, the, the, the Mahayana of Zen and Tibetan practice, um, they ha- also have many different practices that they teach as meditation. But even without, in our Theravada lineage, many different ways that uh, this sutta is interpreted 
and vipassana practice is taught. And I think Annie gave a great talk the other night kind of describing the origins, the, the, the somewhat more recent origins of the particular formal style that we practice here at IMS, where Mahasi Sayadaw was really a very pivotal teacher uh, back in the, the middle of the last century. He was a very deep and uh, experienced practitioner, became a teacher. And one of his students was Upandita, who, again, many of our teachers practice with, many people here have practiced with. Um, and so that's a sort of direct or more immediate lineage. But one of the turning points or why Mahasi Sayadaw has been so influential is that he really felt that lay people could practice meditation. There'd been a movement away, even for monastics, of a lot of intensive practice. There were many monasteries where people didn't practice meditation so much. They, they took up the, the, the uh, vinaya, the, the, the rules and rituals of the monastic life. They would do uh, other functions of living in a monastic community, but not everyone meditated. And Mahasi Sayadaw really saw that this technique, as the Buddha taught, was really um, accessible to a wide variety of people. So started developing retreats where lay people could come and practice. And so that was a real turning point. Um, this teaching where you didn't have to develop really deep concentration, but in a 10-day or perhaps longer retreat, could really get great benefit from direct moment-to-moment clarity of mindfulness, momentum of mindfulness. And so that's really what we brought back here to the West, this obviously invitation to mainly lay people, certainly monastics do come and practice here, but it has been a tradition of a lot of lay people as practitioners and teachers um, practicing in this intensive way and really discovering great fruits from this practice of vipassana or mindfulness. But there are, as I said, many variations of interpretations of this sutta. Another strong influence in the way we teach and practice here is Ajahn Chah, Thai forest meditation master, died now probably 20 years ago, I'm not sure of the time, but very influential, the teacher of Ajahn Sumedho and Jack Cornfield and um, the, the, the origin of all the, many of the Western monasteries that are now in the States and in, in Europe. And there he taught a much more relaxed style of practice, just really living and, and, and uh, being in the forest, living very simply, living in community, letting the mind settle very naturally. wasn't so focused on uh, the text or study or certainly the Abhidhamma, that, those teachings of Buddhist psychology that Annie mentioned the other day. So there's a strong influence of Ajahn Chah in our way of practice too when we especially encourage the relaxation and the ease that you can hear his voice uh, speaking in that way. Many of us have practiced with S.N. Goenka, the Indian man who practiced uh, in the Burmese tradition and teaches a very concentrating style of body scan. We call it sweeping meditation, moving the attention through the body. Um, was my first teacher, very influential, very important figure, but a different way, again, of practicing vipassana. It, there was Venerable Damodaro, whose main insight practice was encouraging people to move their arms slowly up and down, and instead of the breath, focus on that. So again, we, we want to um, soften a little our idea of what meditation is and see all of these other possibilities. Many of these uh, practices were, or, or teachers were written up in a book Jack Cornfield wrote many years ago called Living Buddhist Masters. And he just went and visited all of these very well-respected teachers and described their practices and their teachings. He's had to change the title to something like Recently Dead Buddhist Masters, because I think there's only one still living. But it was a very inspiring book for me. I know it was one of the first Dharma books I read that, that gave me a sense of all these practices. 
And then Venerable Pa Oksayadaw, who's come and taught here at the Forest Refuge a, a, a couple of times. I've practiced with him here. Um, a very inspiring and powerful teacher of deep states of concentration, teaching the jhanas. Um, and, and his practice really takes this sutta literally and uh, has people go through the deep states of absorption and from there to the insight practices. And so very intense, very powerful, and for most people takes many months to um, master those teachings. And then more recently, um, a number of us have practiced with Saida Utejaniya, again a Burmese meditation master who teaches um, a much more open style of meditation where the focus is not so much on getting the mind really concentrated or a, a focus on objects, but really the attitude of the mind, the relationship of the mind to experience and having that be the primary focus or interest in the meditation. All of these teachers are, of course, convinced that their practice is the best one and the right way and the way you should practice. Some of them are a little less dogmatic, but there there can be that tendency in the Buddhist traditions as there are in any other human endeavor. What we've tended to do here at IMS, our sister center, Spirit Rock, and the other places that are associated with these kinds of teachings is to, I feel, take the, the best skillful means of many of these teachings. We've, many of us have practiced with these different teachers in these different styles and kind of distill down what we find really works, especially here in the West for mainly Western practitioners. Of course, it works for, for anyone, but really with a, this, the, the, the tendency of the Western mind to be perhaps a little cynical, scientific, um, a little little sort of stepped back from not so much faith or devotion, not growing up in Buddhist in a Buddhist culture, it's understandable that that we wouldn't relate to these teachings in quite the same way as as people growing up in a Buddhist culture will. And these practices are really suitable for short, intensive retreats, which we often teach a week or ten days. Of course, the power of them can really be felt in a longer retreat like this of six weeks or three months. But the, 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 this style of practice has really proved to be very um, useful for people. Obviously, it's drawn you to come back again and again and to now commit to a longer retreat because of the benefit you found in this style of practice, in this moment-to-moment attention of our direct, immediate experience of mind and body. This is the essence of what we teach. What I want to talk about, especially tonight, but also in the subsequent talks, is some of the practices in the sutta that we don't tend to talk about so much. There are very powerful practices that would need their own unfolding. And so in a, in a regular retreat like this, we, we don't tend to emphasize them. But I think, again, it's helpful for us to know about them. You may have heard of them before. Just to give a little bit of background or context to what the Buddha felt would, could be helpful or interesting for us to pay attention to. Not that you should necessarily take them up. You know, what we're teaching here in the morning, the instructions we're giving are more than enough for this path to unfold, but helpful to have this greater context for our understanding. So this sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, begins with saying, the instructions that the Buddha is about to give are the direct path for the purification of beings, or the one-way path. And I think this is a, a, a good translation. Sometimes you might hear it again said, this is the only way, you know, the only way to get to this form of liberation. But I think more accurate to say, no, this is, but this is a direct path, or this is the only way that this path of practice, go, practice goes to more freedom, more understanding, more wisdom, more liberation. And then it has these, um, this, invitation 
of how we should approach practice or could approach practice, what would be a useful attitude to bring to practice. And it's these three terms that one should be ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. And I love that it starts with this word ardent or ardency. Sometimes it's translated as diligence. The Pali word is atapi, and the root of that word means fire. So it's really a call to a passionate um, uh, way of practicing, really, that this is very important. And it takes all of our uh, ardor, our, our intention and our diligence to really practice in the way the Buddha's describing. And I know that sometimes, as you're doing this practice, it can seem a little dry. You know, just simply being with the breath. No one's going to sit here and say, the breath is the most exciting thing you've ever experienced. I bet you can't wait to come in here and breathe again, right? Um, It's just another breath. Walking meditation, again, it's not going to hit the high list of, you know, if you come to Massachusetts, make sure you do some walking meditation. At IMS, you shouldn't miss it. You know, it's not up there with the fall foliage on the tours of... Massachusetts. So how do we create that kind of passion or ardor around this very simple practice? It really has to come from discovering the joy there is in being in the present moment, in really fully landing in a unified way, in a collected way, in what's happening here and now. And that's something that it takes time to develop. We're so used to being pulled out here and there and looking for the next hit of pleasant or satisfaction or you know, acting out of our restlessness or delusion and to actually bring everything together into the here and now and just be with what is. There's a contentment that's possible in that. There's a a love that can come out of that that's, you know, again, not the, 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 the highest sort of ecstatic. Sometimes it can be that way, but most of the time it's very simple. But there can be a sweetness or a contentment or a sense of well-being in that that's really quite radically different to how we usually relate. And then the clearly comprehending I'll talk more about later. It's, it's this knowing or understanding uh, that Guy was highlighting when he was reading really from this sutta in his talk on mindfulness of breathing. Um, and then mindful. We're invited to be mindful. Now, in this day and age, it should seem like we should all know what mindfulness is because it seems like it's everywhere. I know Guy said it's mainstream, and sometimes I'll say that to someone and they'll shake their head and say, it's not mainstream yet. You know, <laughs> compared to where it was, it might seem more known about, and yes, it is. You know, it's been on the cover of Time magazine and Oprah's talked about it or whatever, but still not literally mainstream. But it's interesting that I think I said there's so many different descriptions or definitions of what it is. Um, and the, the, the Pali word that's being translated here is sati. And again, li- its literal derivation is about memory or to remember. So we often say it's not hard to be mindful. You can be mindful in a moment. It's just hard to remember to be mindful, right? It's like, oh, right mindfulness. That's what I meant to be doing. Again, we've talked about this guy, mentioned it. The simple definition is just the direct knowing of your experience. What's happening now in mind, in body, inner, outer, but particularly in our inner experience. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as understanding our experience. Analeo uses knowing. I tend to prefer prefer knowing. It's more just simple and direct because understanding makes us makes me think that I should be you know, understanding something about my experience. And sometimes I'm just knowing it. I'm just knowing that I'm breathing, knowing that I'm stepping or feeling something. But it's very much this present moment awareness, right? This knowing what's happening. And kind of unadorned, the, the um, 
intention of it is, can we see clearly with as few filters or layers in between us and the experience as possible? And part of the power of this practice is seeing how often we are seeing through perceptions and projections. We're not actually seeing clearly. So the practice is, can we see as clearly as possible without initially or or in this moment interfering with what our experience is? This kind of non-judging awareness. These are all kind of extra to the knowing of what's happening, but it's implicit in this kind of mindfulness. And also implicit in true mindfulness or what we call samasati, as a path factor, as a path factor in the Eightfold Path, is some kind of wisdom, some kind of clear comprehension. Mindfulness, when it's samasati, wise or right mindfulness, has as a basic um, way of relating to experience, of cultivating wholesome qualities of mind and heart, relating skillfully to experience, and tending to diminish unskillful or unbeneficial experiences or ways of relating to experience. Just through being mindful, if there is that clarity of mindfulness, it has that tendency. We don't need to do anything to fix the moment. Sometimes mindfulness is enough. It's just like picking up a hot coal. No one has to tell you to let it drop. We feel the impact, and so we drop it. And in the sutta, again and again, the bhikkhu talks, sorry, the Buddha talks to bhikkhus, addresses bhikkhus. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his notes and his translation of the sutta, says that a bhikkhu can mean any serious practitioner. So that definitely includes us here. Anyone who takes up six weeks or three months of practice is a serious practitioner. So the Buddha is speaking to us about how to practice. And then lastly, as an attitude or a way of approaching this practice, it says that the practitioner, having put away covetousness or grief for the world, or Anawayo translated as free from desires and discontent, This is how we begin this practice. But I often think if we could do that, we're already there. You know, if we put away covetousness and grief or desires and discontent, we've got the, the teachings right there. But it's really talking about this is the orientation, that we don't want to keep ourselves entangled in the world, why we encourage this renunciation, particularly of cell phones and devices, of reading, of, of kind of looking outward for distraction, for amusement, for entertainment, and really turning the attention to just simply being here in this, um, in this retreat, in this very simple setting that we find ourselves with. So not dwelling on worldly concerns, worldly things. This is the renunciation that we'll talk more about in the coming days that really helps us in this practice. So, as I said there, I think I said, there are four foundations or establishments, references, frames of mindfulness. The first is the body, where we've been starting and we always start in our practice. Next is feeling tone or Vedana. Third is mindfulness of mind states or mind. And then fourthly, dhammas, dhamma, dhammic principles. And the Buddha said that any one of these in and of itself would be sufficient for awakening. You could take any one and if you practiced it intensively, that would lead to awakening. But when you put them together, they make this amazing map for practice. Every aspect of our experience can be included in this map and practiced with with mindfulness. So I just, again, the brilliance of the Buddha's teachings out of his own direct experience, putting together these instructions to guide us in our practice. 
I don't know whether, you know, I don't imagine that he came up with it all at once, but actually developed it as he saw what worked for people and gave people instructions. And then in this one sutta, brought it all together. So the first foundation is the contemplation of the body, where we start with every meditation retreat, every guided meditation that we're giving so far, land in the body, feel the body. Again, we have to remember that the Buddha taught in the context of his time and his culture, 2,500 years ago, rural India, an agrarian society. It had a simple caste system. Um, He was born into a wealthy family. Um, Father was said to be a king, certainly a clan leader, probably um, responsible for a lot of land and, and, and people that he Uh, within his clan. So the Buddha talked about the body in relationship to that culture. And it's interesting, in some ways not that different. You can, if you read suttas, you'll hear of people, uh, and it's, you know, one of the things, if you take the eight precepts, you renounce uh, adornments and beautification. There there would be uh, young men who would be of a different, they would be the blue clan and they'd all wear blue clothes and blue makeup or white clothes and white makeup and women would wear adornments. There was a lot of emphasis on on beauty just as there is in our culture and perfumes and clothes. And on the other side, there was a strong um, spiritual tradition of asceticism, which the Buddha partake, partook of you know, before his awakening, spent many years really torturing the body, not eating and living outside and wearing rags and, and sleeping rough. Um, and so that sense of mortification of the body. Um, and we have a similar kind of range of relationships to the body, certainly the indulging and obsessing, you know, this, this focus on looks and fashion and, you know, all of the ways social media has really emphasized that through, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and posting images of, of different experiences that we have. And even the kind of ascetic um, way, you know, of, of really testing the body, whether it's through athletic pursuits or distorted views of the body. You know, there are certainly monastic or spiritual traditions that, that relate to the body in this way. What's different, I think, in our modern society is if we have added self-hatred and disconnection to the body. I don't think that was so prevalent in the Buddha's times where we can really learn to feel that our body isn't good enough for whatever reason. You know, its shape, its size, its color, its, its, its physiognomy, its height, everything. These things that we literally have no control over. We can be so obsessed with and, and confused about and have this unwise relationship to and even disconnection. So many people hardly are aware They have a body unless something goes wrong, and then it's like, fix it, this shouldn't be happening. I want to tell this story because it happened here at IMS. Um, As I said, I don't think they had that same relationship in the Buddha or in many other countries, even now. Um, When the Dalai Lama first visited IMS, so this is now many years ago when IMS started in the, the mid to late 70s, you know, the Dalai Lama wasn't such a giant world figure, and he actually came here and spoke with people and and, uh, gave some teachings. And I believe this happened upstairs in M200, not down here, but either way, he was talking to a group of students, and one of them asked him, what about self-hatred or self-judgment? You know, this, this, this tendency I have to be really critical and and hate myself and not, you know, the person went on a little bit about how painful that was. And the Dalai Lama looked very puzzled and talked to his translator and asked some more questions and back to the translator. And he really couldn't understand what this young person was talking about. And finally he said, no, no, that's wrong. Don't think that way. You have a precious human birth. 
you should rejoice in your capacity to be alive, to be human, to have these qualities of mind, a mind you can develop, really could not understand this tendency towards self-judgment and hatred. And over time, he's come to see it really as a pattern in um, many people in the West, and so speaks to it a lot, the need to to bring love and compassion. Um, And so we need to take that in as we do these practices, to start with, this is for our well-being, that we do it out of kindness, so we can wake up, so we can discover more love, more compassion. As we do these practices, we bring that attitude in. I think James is going to talk more about this tendency, because it's so painful, and so many of us tend to bring this into our practice. But what's wonderful about the sutta and the Buddha's instructions is he tells us to be mindful of or to contemplate the body in the body or the body as the body. And what he's saying here is experience the body in its sort of felt immediate sense, not our idea of the body, our concept of the body, or how we'd like the body to be, or an idealized version of the body, a body that doesn't give us any problems. The body as it is. And then he goes through these 14 different practices, all to do with the body, many of which we teach and we'll be talking about, but as I said, some of which we don't. But he begins with the breath where we always begin our practice. Excuse me. Guy gave a whole talk on, excuse me, working with the breath, because it's such an important part of our relationship to the body. It has these qualities of steadiness but impermanence, um, you know, life central to life, the breath of life. So it has this way we can engage in it. And again, the Buddha said, just this breath meditation, what's we call, what we call anapanasati, mindfulness of in and out breathing, that alone is sufficient to awakening. There's a whole anapanasati sutta where the Buddha starts with mindfulness of breathing and through these different steps goes through the whole path of awakening to full liberation just through attention to the breath. And he said that the other three foundations of mindfulness can be realized with just this practice of mindfulness of breathing. And this is how he talks about mindfulness of breathing. And how, monks, does one, in regard to the body, abide contemplating the body? Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, or to your room in the annex, one sits down, or the meditation hall at IMS, one sits down, having folded one's legs crosswise, sets one's body erect, and established mindfulness in front of one. Mindfulness one, mindful one breathes in, mindful one breathes out. So basically, assume the meditation posture, and even though it says to sit cross-legged, The next Buddha is often depicted sitting in a chair. So just, you know, chair, any other posture is fine. You pay attention to the breathing. Breathing in long, one knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows, I breathe out, I breathe out short. One trains thus. I shall breathe in, experience the, the whole body. One trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. One trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation. One trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. So this very simple set of instructions, knowing the breath very directly, using the breath to calm the body. And as we've said, the calming of the body invites the mind to also come into calming. 
again, not to hold that, that that's how we should always be, because sometimes we're not calm, the body isn't calm, the mind isn't calm, but that that's a possibility or a potential for this practice, that we can use it as a foundation, as a refuge, as a place to kind of steady the awareness, this breath and body. And from that can deepen into insight. The the knowing, you know, the instruction says, you know, we know that the breath is long or short. Sometimes it'll say rough or smooth. Again, we take the instructions that work for us. Sometimes it's helpful to have that kind of clarity around the breath, but often it's just keeping it really simple. Just aware of the breath coming and going. We'll talk again more about breathing and the ways of being with the breath as the retreat goes on. And then... In the sutta, each, once the Buddha's given a set of instructions, there's always a refrain that's sometimes described as the insight section of the sutta or of this, the particular practice that's just been mentioned. And in it, he talks about practicing in the way that was just described internally, which is what we always do. Close the eyes, or even if the eyes are open, but we turn the attention inward to our direct experience in this case, of the breath in the body. But then he says, practice this way externally. And then both internally and externally. It's a common sort of formulation in the teachings. One, the other, then both. We don't tend to emphasize the external. Most of us have this idea that when I meditate, it's like I pull my blankie over me and I want it to be calm and quiet and nothing should disturb me. Anyone ever have that idea about your meditation practice? It's like, conditions should be perfect, quiet, still, and just the right temperature. Good luck with that. What the Buddha is saying is we need to open up our field of awareness to include the external conditions. And he literally says, in this case, external breathing. Now, this is not something we commonly want to pay attention to, but it can actually be really helpful, especially if you find there are heavy breathers in your vicinity. It's like, can we include that too? It's just sound, right? But how many times have you been disturbed by someone else's breathing, right? And true, you know, we do encourage people, breathe quietly, you know, don't breathe in a way that other people can hear you, but sometimes... People just have to breathe in that way. They're congested, they have a cold, um, their energy is moving in that way. If we're going to let that ruffle our feathers, meditation is going to be problematic because stuff happens when you have this many people together. So this invitation, can we include the outer experience of someone else's breathing or even someone else's body, all the noises and the things that happen when we have a body. The different, it's not just air that's being exchanged, right? There's all kind of gases and noises that get exchanged here. So that's also possibly part of our meditation practice. And then he talks about the nature of each of these experiences in its arising and vanishing. And this is why it's called the insight part of the practice, because with every aspect that we're invited to be mindful of, we see that it's conditioned, that it arises due to conditions, ceases due to conditions. The breath, certainly, arising and passing, but it goes on, does this with all of the ones that I'll be talking about, that we've been talking about. We see it's conditioned nature. So a common feature of the Buddha's teachings is to do what I call deconstructing experience. When we take something to be solid, the body particularly, we can say, yep, this is, you know, it's, 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 it's this solidity, it's heavy, it's, you know, fleshy, it's got bones, etc. If you just take it as the one thing, it's impenetrable, impenetrable. But what the Buddha does over and over again is say, look at this. It's actually constructed of all of these different aspects. You know, you could see how the 
in the, uh, the breath is constructed of the in-breath and the out-breath. And even within that, the beginning, middle, end of in-breath, beginning, middle, end of out-breath. That this body is not a solid thing. It's, it's just energy manifesting in this way. When we can start to explore this um, condition-constructed nature of experience, there's a way in to see it more clearly. And this is essential in this, this practice. And a different relationship to whatever we're experiencing is possible. It's kind of we step out of our habituated, sort of um, conditioned, almost blind way, a, sum, a lot of all the assumptions, projections we have about something, and we say, ah, it's like this, really. What mindfulness does is create a choice point. This little space where we're recognizing clearly what the experience is. And as I said, mindfulness has this wisdom factor of what's a wise relationship to this. And, you know, sometimes it's just knowing it, just breath moving in and out, body as it is. But sometimes a different response can be possible in that relationship. But I love that the Buddha, again, repeats over and over again this instruction for keeping it simple, where he says, mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And after all of this complexity of long breath and short breath and calming, and he, he just says, yes, you can do that, but remember, this is all you need. Mindfulness that there is a body. There is a body sitting. This is the body. The body is like this. Established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. For a number of years now, when Joseph Goldstein has been teaching this retreat, he's taken this, um, inst- it is an instruction, and given it here in the hall. Just really read it out and said, this is how to practice. There is a body sitting, and then using that awareness of the body to calm or tranquilize the bodily formations. It can be a great practice to just notice the body sitting, simple. And then if the mindfulness feels it gets interested or gets more engaged, of course we can dive in, see a little more minutely, dissect or deconstruct experience. But that basic awareness always good as a foundation practice. The teaching goes on to what's called the four postures. So we've been talking about this, that we want to practice mindfulness all the, you know, we talk about continuity of mindfulness. So sitting, walking, standing, lying down. Sitting and walking, we've talked quite a bit about. We'll probably do a standing, guided standing meditation one of these days because we want to be able to practice whatever we're doing, standing, waiting for the meal bell to ring, or standing in line, standing, waiting for a practice meeting, lying down, taking a rest in your room, or actually consciously and intentionally doing lying down meditation practice. All of these are really important, and the Buddha encouraged us to practice them. But he then even deepened that um, sense or that practice of the four postures in what's called the, the full awareness practice. And so the, the, the invitation is, or the practice is, when going forward or returning, one acts clearly knowing, when looking ahead or looking away, when flexing or extending one's limbs, when wearing one's robes or carrying one's outer robes and bowl, clearly knowing, when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, one acts clearly knowing. One brings mindfulness in to all of our daily activities. So this is what I mean by this sutta really um, inviting us in to practice whatever we're doing. There's nothing that needs to be outside of the field of practice. Whatever we're doing, we can wake up and bring mindfulness in, in the bathroom, in the shower, great places to practice. 
I remember when I did my first retreat, it was with S.N. Goenka in person. I was fortunate enough to sit a couple of retreats with him. I was, it was in the early 80s. I was in my mid-20s, and I didn't have a clue. I'd been trying to teach myself meditation. I think I already said that from Jack's book, Living Buddhist Masters, you know, literally read and put it down and practice. Had no idea what I was doing. And someone said to me, if you want to learn to meditate, go to a Goenka retreat. I was living in India at the time. And so it's a whole long story, you know, they just said it's in Jaipur. That was the address I had. That's a big city, but so I went there and just kept asking and finally, you know, I actually, anyway, I won't even go into the story. I found the retreat. And it was really intense. If anyone has done a Goenka retreat, you know, and I was, I came with a backpack. There were no, you know, four-inch zabatons and nice, I was, had a towel that I rolled up that was, you know, on a cement floor. It was excruciating. But something touched me in that practice. Again, I could talk more about that. I just knew that there was something here when the, the idea that it was possible not to keep creating suffering for myself and others, that was radical. But I always remember at the end of the retreat, kind of debriefing with, there was a few friends I met, uh, you know, they'd come from in different ways and we'd, we'd met there. And he, this friend talked about being mindful, you know, in his room or in walking. I'm like, what? You know, because I would just meditate, meditate, really. It was sweat coming down and oh, it was so painful. But in the between times, I like, you know, oh, going here and there and, you know, the bathroom and showers and whatever. I had no clue because they didn't talk about being my, I didn't hear it anyway. There was certainly no walking meditation. There wasn't much talk about being mindful of thoughts or whatever, certainly, or I didn't hear it, but it was like radical to me. Oh, you meant between times too? By my second retreat, I kind of got more of a hang of it, but this is really so important that it's everything and everywhere. This is what the Buddha is saying. This is what's possible. And so we, we'll talk about this continuity of mindfulness. And I think we've even said something like this, but again, I, Joseph, on the last few retreats he was teaching, you know, he said, we usually think about sitting meditation, that's the most important, walking meditation, distant second, and then the in-between times, you know, trail along behind. He said, what if you reverse that? And that the in-between times was actually where the practice really happened. And that walking meditation was the next most important. And sitting was kind of like just something you did to fill in the time, you know. How about relating it that way? What we often find on these retreats is people often have their deepest insights outside the meditation hall. And often in their work meditation is their working perhaps in difficult circumstances or looking at their tendency to perfectionism or judgment or criticism. So this is the possibility of this practice. I can see I'm going to have to keep moving. I'm not going through this fast enough. The next really interesting section is one that we don't teach in the way that the Buddha talks about it, and that is an investigation of the parts of the body traditionally called the 32 parts of the body meditation. If you count it in the sutta, there's actually only 31, but he didn't mention the brain, and people thought we should include that. So plus the brain makes 32. And this section is often, it's the, called the asuba practices, and this word has been translated as loathsome or foul. The word asuba, suba means beautiful, so it literally means not beautiful. So where they, you know, this is a sort of distorted view that came in over time, I don't get the sense it's what the Buddha really meant because when he talked about the practice, he said, treat the body or view the body as though it was a sack with openings at both ends, you know? And in that sack, there are all these different kinds of grains and beans, red beans and green beans and white beans. I, they're not loathsome. They're not repulsive or foul. They're just beans. And he said, that's how you should relate to the body. So I'd heard about this practice, but never found anyone who practiced it or would teach it. So some time ago, a number of years ago, I was on a self-retreat at the Forest Refuge, and I thought, I, sh I should really explore this, because the Buddha talked about it. I'd like to know how this practice works. I could find very little about it at that time. There's some in the Vasudhimaga, the, the, the um, very thick book of meditation practices compiled by Buddha Gosha in the fifth century. 
again, it has that flavor of, ugh, you know, look at the body because that will help you really disconnect because it's so gross. Um, I didn't find that so helpful. But what I did find over in the Forest Refuge Library was a catalog from the exhibition called Body Worlds. Anyone heard of or been to Body Worlds? Yeah, this, I think it was a German scientist or doctor, found a way of basically embalming bodies that were donated to him with this method, plastination or something, where he could keep them um, not decaying and even dissect them a little and have them in very realistic poses, but with various parts of the body exposed, certainly the flesh and the um, nervous system, the circulatory system. And so there was a catalog from that display. There's about 30 different bodies that are in all sorts of states of basically autopsy um, in this book. So it was really helpful because I had no clue what the spleen was or where the pancreas was and what it looked like. So that was kind of my Bible for how to be in the body. Um, and it was amazing. What I found was it wasn't disgusting at all. It was awe-inspiring. Because, you know, we usually relate to this body through its external appearance. And even that, you know, as I said, we take have so much pride or shame or judgment about the body, but most of it we're not in control of at all. Um, but certainly the insides, we, you know, yes, you can affect it a little by diet, exercise, what you put in and on it, but it's doing its thing, right? And most of it, we have no idea about the miracles that are being performed every moment in this body, that it works as well as it does. And so it's a great practice for um, having a different relationship to the body. Um, and, uh, you know, as I was doing that practice, this was a number of years ago, it, I left the retreat and it became, uh, it was the time of our 20th wedding anniversary. And Guy said to me, what do you want to do for, for our 20th anniversary? And I said, I want to, we live in San Francisco, I want to go to LA to the Body Worlds exhibit. So that's what we did for our 20th wedding anniversary. We drove down to LA, got a hotel, and spent the day looking at dead bodies. <laughs> it's a very Buddhist way of celebrating a wedding, a marriage. But it was, and it, you know, what was interesting, I went in, it was like they were my friends because I'd spent so long with these photos. Oh, there he is. Look, really, it's you. Yeah. You. Anyway. But it shifted my relationship to the body, you know, and as I said, this deconstruction that I talked about earlier, and it's a, such a great antidote to the usual attachment, obsession, um, judging way we can have of relating to the body. Then goes into the four elements, um, which is the great elements of earth, air, fire, and water, how that's what we're actually experiencing. You know, we think we're feeling our, our, our backside aching or our, you know, shoulder blade contracting. We're feeling these different, what we're literally and actually experiencing is these elemental qualities of pressure or hardness or softness or heat or coolness. And again, as a way to disidentify. If we say, oh no, my shoulder is aching, there's me and mine and aversion and, and a problem and, and all of these issues. But if we can just say a oh, hardness, tightness, again, that's why we talk about these ways of relating. It just helps us get a little space around the experience. So really helpful. And then the last set of practices are ones we often don't teach. Um, and they're the charnel ground contemplations or death contemplations. In Asia, these are very traditional and I would think quite common practices to teach. And certainly in the time of the Buddha, they were charnel ground reflections. Bodies tended to be either burnt, so you would see them out in the open being burnt, or they would just be laid out to be to go through their decomposition. And so it was a practice for monastics to go to charnel grounds and observe this. You can read many stories of this, both in the time of the Buddha and traditionally in Buddhist countries. But here we hide death away. 
so many people now die in hospitals, die, you know, in this very um, artificial environment. And we, we both hide it away and we trivialize it through the entertainment industry, through video games and movies. It said that young children by early age will have seen thousands of deaths, but in this trivialized way where the impact, the power, the immensity, the, the importance of death is just tossed away through these games of blasting people or, you know, all of the unseen, un, you know, dehumanized um, beings that, are, that die in these uh, movies and games. Here we're really um, invited into the opposite of that. Turn towards this inevitable ending of this life. This body too is not exempt. So we're invited into um, awareness of death, not to you know, push it away, hold it with a sense of horror, oh no, but it was the Buddha's horror, or you could say terror, at the thought of old age sickness and death that spurred him onto his awakening. But he realized you can't run away from it. You have to turn towards it and really understand it's only your attachment to being alive, your attachment to this body that actually brings the fear um, that there's a wisdom in contemplating old age sickness and death, really recognizing that. So in monasteries all over the world, monastics will chant these five reflections. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. All that is beloved and pleasing to me, that I will be separated from. And I am the heir, the owner of my karma. So this is true for all of us. The, the power of actually landing in that, of realizing that, of holding that. Again, not out of morbidity or grimness, but really to discover a way of being fully alive because we're not in terror about death. We're actually fully alive, fully present. I had more to say about that, but our time is up. I want to finish with just, again, the, the power or the importance in the Buddha's teachings of this mindfulness of the body. It is our field for exploration where we can learn to know, accept, bring kindness and compassion to this being, this body. And it's appointed to selflessness. Yes, you know, there's a way that this is my body, that's your body, but it is just a body, all uh, with this universal nature in its life and in its process. So it's a, a field for exploring the three characteristics where we see this body is not permanent, it's not perfect, and it's not personal. Anicca dukkha anatta. And all the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is everything you need to awaken. The whole world is here. The world, the beginning and the end of the world. So finish with this uh, excerpt from a sutta, um, from the Samyutta Nikaya on the value of mindfulness of the body. And it's called the beauty queen. Again, in the Buddha's day, they had beauty queens who entertained and sung and danced. So, much, so as you hear this, imagine Beyonce was the one they were talking about. The, the Buddha said, suppose, monks, that a large crowd of people came thronging together saying, Beyonce, Beyonce, the beauty queen, beauty queen. And suppose that the beauty queen is highly accomplished at singing and dancing, so that even greater crowd of people came thronging, saying the beauty queen is singing, the beauty queen is dancing. Then a person comes along, desiring life and shrinking from death, desiring pleasure and abhorring pain. That's all of us, right? Someone says to them, now look here, you. You must take this bowl filled to the brim with oil and carry it on your head in between the great crowd and the beauty queen. So basically they're in the mosh pit, right? The per and a person with a raised sword will follow you. 
follow right behind you. And wherever you spill even a drop of oil, right there they will cut off your head. This is a little gruesome, but anyway. Now, what do you think, monks? Will that person, not paying attention to the bowl of oil, let themselves be distracted outside? No, Lord, they say. I have given you this parable to convey a meaning. The meaning is this. The bowl filled to the brim with oil stands for mindfulness immersed in the body. Thus you should train yourselves. We will develop mindfulness immersed in the body. We will pursue it, hand it the reins, and take it as a basis. Give it a grounding, steady it, consolidate it, and undertake it well. That is how you should train yourselves. So with the words of the Buddha, let's just let those words settle into silence for a moment. Thank you for your attention. About half an hour for walking before our last sit together with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.